Oh my State police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. I hate Asians. I can't breathe. Prosecutors saying the victims were targeted because they were gay or transgender. I didn't want to come and I don't want to be here. Uniform doesn't make him a robot. Just like your uniform, your skin color doesn't make you a criminal. We gonna do this the correct way. Hello and welcome to Diversity on Fire. This is Heather from the great state of New Hampshire. This is Ashley from North Carolina. And today we are talking to a beautiful, strong, independent woman. She's a serial entrepreneur who is all parts kind-hearted, caring, Christian, forever bold, unapologetically herself, and the actual inspiration for our Firestarter conversations. Ashley and I are so excited to turn the tables today and put our very own Nina Feminion in the hot seat. We can't wait to give Nina our full attention and talk to her about her specific experiences and find out exactly what she thinks we can all do to speed up the much-needed societal progress as it relates to racial injustice in America. Thank you for that intro. That was beautiful. I liked it. Gorgeous. So, Nina, I want to start it off with, we have talked previously outside of the podcast, and I think you might have mentioned it um, on air as well, that you've had some experiences where something has happened to you in terms of a microaggression or maybe just a blatant aggression, and the people that you are with who look differently than you, maybe they're white, I'm not sure you didn't you didn't tell us, but I know that they weren't black, kind of dismissed it, dismissed what you said, and basically said you were overthinking it. So I want to share this quote, and I'm just going to ask you how it makes you feel and if you can give us any specific examples. Um, the quote is something that was posted on our page, our Facebook page. It is, in order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. Brene Brown, how does that make you feel? So it's part of what's defined who I am as a human being, I think. I wouldn't have said that I would recognize that from, you know, kind of like consciously, but subconsciously. And I think it's because of all the experiences I had growing up. And so what I really have been able to do as an adult, and I wouldn't say until I was an adult because I, I needed to grow into that space, but I've really been able to think about other people and what is going on with them and just see them for being humans beyond anything else and give them an opportunity to tell me what something is like for them so that I can listen to them firsthand because I find that I grow in that space. That's awesome. So basically your experiences have forced you into this position where you can be more empathetic because you know what it's like when people aren't empathetic with you. Literally, okay. because because I know what it's like. And so, and when I think, I mean, it depends on your personality type because I've definitely seen the other the other side as well. But I think when you have experienced a lot of pain and you're not the type to, and, and you don't have like a revenge spirit, I think you really, really want to not be that source for someone else. Yeah. You don't want to perpetuate it. Correct. So starting off, um, I think you've also mentioned this before, but I want to dig into it a little deeper. So you grew up in Clarinda, Iowa, tiny little town. 
tiny little Midwestern town of Clarinda, Iowa. I know you said I haven't looked up the population recently, but it was around 5,000. Yep. And um, your family was the only family, the only family that was um, of color in that town of 5,000 people. Yeah. Only black family. I, I know that there was a few Hispanics, but I'm not even sure if they were like nuclear Hispanic families. They may not have been. Okay. Hmm. So tell us a little bit about your family, like about your actual family, not necessarily about Clarinda yet, but just like your family in general. Yeah. So my family, my parents both were from Cameroon, which is a um, country in West Africa, and it is a um, West Coast country. So part of it is coastal and then part of it goes inland. It's underneath the hump. That's what I tell people um, of Africa. And one of the first things I always tell people is that Africa is a continent. (laughs) That's a really solid point. Important information. Yeah. Yes. And so they're, um, they're, they have two uh, native language or sorry, not native languages because colonization. They actually had two official languages, which were English and French. My mom and dad both have bachelor's degrees. And one of the big things um, for a lot of immigrants is that they want better opportunity. So they came to the United States, um, both of them, to further their education. Actually, probably you guys don't know this, but both of my parents' parents, um, both of my grandfathers were polygamists. And so- really. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have like any, cause, cause really I don't have any knowledge of my grandparents. My, my one grandfather on my maternal side died really early. And then I don't really know anything about my grandfather on my dad's side. So we don't have the same kind of like ancestral lineage um, in my family that most people are accustomed to in the United States. But I do know that's why they came here. And at some point, my dad came to the University of Iowa at first. Um, at some point they were going to Northwest Missouri State. Um, which was in Maryville, Iowa, and that was in the 70s. Things were still so racially volatile that there were still pretty public attacks on Black people in Missouri at that time, and they felt it was too dangerous. And so that's how we ended up in the town of Clarendo, which was 30 miles away from uh, Maryville, Missouri. And the glowing metropolis that it is. <laughs> yes. So then um, my parents at that point already had two children, um, when they came to the States, who they left in Cameroon, it was my older sister and my older brother. So their uh, Cameroonian origination as well. I'm actually the first born first generation American in my family. And so I was born here. Apparently, I, you know, wasn't uh, a planned child, uh, either with the rest of them, I guess. But my planning's mom, um, overrated. Planning's True. overrated. Yeah, she grew up Catholic, I guess. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. And the and those are some of the weird conversations that I never got to have with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just address this now. She died when I was eighteen, so that they're not they're not things I'll ever get to discuss with her. There was um, three other kids after me, and so there was a uh, a pretty big difference between me and my older brother. So there's five years between us. Our family wasn't reunited until I was seven, and that was wow. um, yeah, till because they tried to bring over. My older sister and brother, when I was four, we all went to Cameroon. So I have been there once. Recollection's very limited. There's a lot of corruption in Cameroon. And um, so basically, like basically bribery was commonplace. And they weren't able to bribe the family out, basically. And so that didn't come until later. Wow. Okay. So there's six of you. Yep. Six. Six kids. Um, One has passed since in a um, tragic kayak accident when 
2011, I believe. Um, So there's five remaining, but there were six total children with my mom and dad. And until my mom passed away, we were a nuclear family. Is everyone in Iowa? No. Um, So my older sister is in New Jersey. Um, My brother, older brother is in Nebraska. So not too far away in Omaha. Um, And my older sister is basically right outside of Camden, which is why I had um, taken particular interest in that whole defund the police thing since it happened close to her. And then my um, younger two sisters actually are very close to me. So we were in the same town forever in Iowa City. Um, Now I'm technically 20 miles away, but they're pretty close. So, um, but we have an interesting family. I wouldn't say that it's typical in the sense that (laughs) out of none of us are married out of all six of us three have kids three have never had kids we uh so you know there's a lot of dynamics at play with you know my dad's probably probably had mental health issues like forever and my mom was a registered nurse she was a nurse her whole life that was interesting um so at least she did have a good paying job in iowa because iowa used to be a leader in mental health care And so she worked for the state. And back then we had four different mental health care facilities that used to be in the corners of the state. So that was a great paying job back then. And so we managed to do okay, but still even on one salary, because my dad wasn't really a breadwinner. He was what I'd say is a wannabe entrepreneur, um, but not with the wherewithal to like actually execute. And so my mom was basically the one who took care of all of us. So it was interesting because I always say I I had a middle-class upbringing, but it was probably closer to working class, like actual um, funding. It was just, she worked really hard at trying to make sure that we presented a certain way. That makes sense. I have many questions about that before we go full on into kind of adolescence and early adulthood. You said you went back to Cameroon at four, but your obviously four-year-old memory is not super solid because brain development, that's not your fault. Um, right. When everyone was reunited at seven, do you have memories of your family being back together for the first time? Do you remember what that was like? Was, can you speak to that experience? Yeah, I was really excited. I actually remember, I don't know where I was, um, but I do remember coming home. So we must've been, must've been at a babysitter's or something. I don't know, but I remember coming home and they were both sleeping, um, on a bed And I remember looking at their soles of their feet, which were a lot more tanned than ours. And I just poked their feet randomly. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) family. Seven, because whatever. Right. You do that. Um, It's a very seven-year-old response. Yeah. Like, it's just so I totally remember it. And now I'm like, why did I do that? But it was tar- it was really hard. There was because of the cultural differences, I'm assuming because of having siblings who did not have their parents with them for a lot of their initial years. There was it it took a while before I and I mean a while, um, before we were all really okay with each other. Who were they with in Cameroon? Uh, my grandmom. Okay. I apparently for most of the time, I think there was a lot of back shifting back and forth. I know that a lot of my family is pretty well off in Cameroon. So, um, but I think that my my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, is who they spent the majority of time with, and I think that things were a little tougher for her. Like I said, especially with because it does seem like it was built on a patriarchal system, and so you know, not having uh, you know, apparently, what I do know is that my 
my grandfather on that side had two wives. And then I know that one of the wives, the other wife died in a fire, I guess, in a freak accident with a lightning storm. And then it was just her and him and then he passed away. So um, it wasn't, I don't know about now as much, which actually I should t- touch base with my family a little bit and just kind of figure out what's going on there. But but I know for several years, it was still very much a male-centered uh, society. And so I think because of that, you know, her financial opportunity wasn't that great. You mentioned that things were not great when they came over. And I, and I can imagine, I, I can't imagine the, the variables and the, the layers of complexity that trying to blend a family that had been separated by distance and time and culture and a million other things that I can't imagine. Um, that's going to be hard. What you said it wasn't, you guys weren't, you weren't okay for a long time. What do you think? drove that change what made it what made it so not okay to begin with and what what helped you guys cross bridges and become a family i'm not actually a hundred percent sure to be honest i've actually thought about that myself a lot Mm -hmm. um i've even asked uh my siblings and they don't really know either it's it might have just been time there there was a point when things were particularly bad Mm-hmm. And then my mom, because my dad used to go back to Cameroon a lot and not be home. And then my mom was basically like trying to manage six kids and babysitting and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so and there was a time when I was the only kid that was getting babysat because she felt it was best if I wasn't um, with the rest of the kids at home. Then, you know, we had a couple of incidents, which... I'm probably just not going to go into a lot of details, but it did force her to decide that things needed to be different. And so then she demanded that my dad stay home. And then after that, which my dad's not really an active parent, but the presence still was enough to kind of change the dynamic, which when you're talking about kids, you just, just need oversight. And so as a result of that, I think we got past the initial animosity with time and just togetherness. I think that Mm -hmm. may not have occurred otherwise. Totally. That makes sense. Unfortunately, time heals most wounds. And it's, it's never, never a fun process. Enough. Never quickly enough. Yeah. So we, and Heather, you opened this conversation up beautifully and mentioned a couple things that um, Nina, you've talked about from time to time. Um, but one of them was that you've experienced this sense of being different, being, I don't know if marginalized is the right word, but being, fr- being on the outside in some way or another. Do you remember a specific time or age when you realized that was happening or the first time that that occurred to you? The very first time. So there's a couple of things. I don't remember anything like the people that my mom had around me at first were great. Um, like babysitting and stuff like that. Like I have very fond memories of them and things like that. I know that probably the very first time I got called the N word was probably about five when I started going to school and having to walk to school. And now that I'm older, I can't tell you that it was an adult. I know that back then I thought they were adults, but now it's possible. It could have been like an older kid that could drive. Right. But people used to hurl epithets at me as a kid walking to school. And so that is a very real experience that I had um, often. I had a babysitter who she never did anything that I can personally recall that was bad. But her kid that lived with her, who was 30 some years old, used to also call me the N-word to my face and my siblings. And there was other forms of abuse that took place along with that. I 
did not talk to my mom about that until I was in high school. And I asked her once uh, why she let us be babysat with by people who would do that. And she, and this is making me a little emotional, but she was like, you never said anything. So she didn't realize. No. And I think back then it was just, I think I learned really early that you just put up with it. Cause what could you do? Like, I, I think I knew she didn't have a lot of choices, even at like six and seven. Cause that was first grade with that guy. Um, and somehow I actually did kind of know he was a loser. Cause I was like, you're not supposed to be 30 and live with your mom. So somehow I didn't know that. Um, the little seven year old brain was perceptive <laughs> AF. And so that was kind of like, that was kind of the precursor that I kind of alluded to with the trailer park stuff because, um, mo- which now we call uh, mobile home parks. So that was, that was kind of how I started developing that negative association with it. But that's, you know, and then I think I said there was a police officer. So we actually got it quite a bit. It has fueled a level of resentment that I haven't cleared yet completely. And I know that. But it it has a lot to do with the fact that I, I see a lot of people from my hometown being so very dismissive of things and has like, oh, because living there was a fun time in the park, you know, and so there's like this denial. And it feels like you're denying my experience. So sometimes there's still a level of anger that I haven't quite addressed yet that I know is there. So did you and your siblings, I know you said you didn't tell your mom about this until after, but as a family, do you remember talking to your siblings about it? Because surely if you experienced this, then they experienced it too. But were you really just self-contained like you really felt like you needed to keep to yourself or do you remember having conversations with your siblings we did not talk about you it. didn't talk about it not at all why not do you think that we was older. do you feel like it was a lot and i'm put, i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but i'm just trying to understand do you think as a kid it was like kind of an embarrassment to you even though it never should have been but like why do you think that you didn't talk to each other about it if i had to think about it i would say and and I was like I said, it's kind of an interesting child. I w- I would say it was kind of like the same sense of how I didn't talk about Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy with my mom or with anyone else. I and 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 so just to put some very quick context in it. So so my parents coming from a different country didn't subscribe to these cultural I don't know what you call them tales or whatever. And and the other thing I will tell you is that as long as I can remember, my mother never told me anything that she knew to be false. Ever. I cannot remember one lie that my mom ever knowingly told me. So that being said, I so I was never told that there was Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or anything like that. But being here and being immersed with, you know, we're having a full-time mom, babysitter school and stuff like that. I believed in all those things. I feel like I was taught to not question authority though. And so I think that I just thought a parents or adults told the truth. I know that because I I was supposed to kind of respect authority with a couple of like deviations. So and not to get into anything like too like weird, but I, I do know that some, you know, at some point when I was four, somebody tried to molest me and, and I knew not to, you know, I, kn- I knew that I was supposed to go to my mom, but I don't recall the conversation. So I, I feel like there's some things that were ingrained in me in terms of that. And so I remember when I realized that Santa Claus was not real, it's probably flawed logic, but long story short, um, there was presence from Santa because other people would give us gifts and they would be put underneath the tree. And then on Christmas, there was no more gifts. And I just, I'm laughing because it's so part of my persona, but I totally knew that I was a good kid 
And so that wasn't really up for debate. So there must not be a Santa. And I remember standing in our kitchen, we had a wood burning stove that went in the chimney, went to the wood burning stove. And I was like, if that guy can fit in there. And then boom, there's no Santa. It was weird. I am glad the seven-year-old logic, my favorite. Well, and also not even the seven-year-old logic, but just the utter self-confidence to know like, dude, I'm good. If he's not coming mm-hmm. for me, he's, it's, he doesn't exist. He just doesn't. Yeah, like <laughs> right. I totally did. But I didn't put the tooth fairy together until like later. So weird. Tooth fairy is a shitey bitch. <laughs> oh, that mm-hmm. one I remember because my friend from Clorinda, anyway, I, she ended up giving me a quarter. I tried to give her my teeth and she was like, oh, it's okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> yeah, she was like, because oh I asked her, I was like, the tooth fairy, I actually said, the tooth fairy isn't real, is it? And she's like, no. And then she went and got a quarter and I was in second grade and she was in fourth grade. And then she gave it to me. And I was like, I thought that teeth had value because... So it's like, oh, here. And she's like, mm. because you had ironclad seven-year-old logic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. But I think that's part of it. So I never had this. I never talked about it to my mom. I never said, oh, there's no Santa. Never said the Tooth Fairy. I literally never said anything. Like, I think I just, I don't know. I just, I like things like I thought things through. I figured them out. And I just rolled with it. So, you know, I don't know that I understood the trauma that might be happening to my siblings in enough of a way to, to deal with it. I literally just knew that this was what our lot life was and just accepted it for what it was. So your outrageously impressive uh, ability to be so self-aware developed so early. Seven-year-old, you know you're good because Santa doesn't, he's not real. That's brilliant. You were, if through one lens or another, you were a very self-aware, maybe a little bit pretentious, very confident, little girl that grew up in a world where you knew you were different early. Everyone has horror stories from adolescence and junior high. I would like to hear what your experience was like. So it started early, Um, you know, like I said, mostly with adults, but then it quickly seeped into school. I don't remember any kind of slurs or kids saying anything mean to me in kindergarten. I don't remember that starting to be a problem until first grade when people wouldn't play with me. Getting picked last for sports all the time. Or if not last, basically close to last, only if there was um, other people who were developmentally challenged. So another type of ostracization that was happening to other people. So I, I know that. I know that it got worse when I got older. Um, I knew I was hypersensitive and I used to cry all the time. And then in fourth grade, I decided I wasn't going to cry anymore. And so then I got really kind of, I don't want to say bullyish, but I got really kind of hard nosed for a while and would put up a front like things didn't bother me because I, because what I realized is the crying was actually making things worse. So I kind of got by for that, but there was, there was a few, there were some kids in my town who did not have that. And they basically were lifelines. A lot of them, you know, and I'm talking about when I was in second grade and beyond, I'm still friends with, I'm still friends with my kindergarten best friend, my first grade best friend, my second grade best friend. So and some of these, some of the older kids who would still play with me. So I, I still am friends with them and I, and I kind of held on to them. Things got really bad in junior high. So in probably like late middle school. So there's, um, there was always ostracization that was trying to take place. I know that like, it was one of those things where um, sometimes if other people wanted to be my friend, 
then they would get pressure to, 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 to drop me if they wanted to be, you know, um, included in other things. I know some people stood up to that. I got a lot of comments in my yearbook about stuff. I didn't understand a lot of stuff like porch monkeys. I didn't understand what that meant. They put that in your yearbook? Would put it in other people's yearbooks that I would see. Mm. Um, and or how ugly I was. They would say that to my face, though. So then I kind of... Yes, not true. Yeah, thank you. I got in a weird habit. Public service running. announcement, Nina the babe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I got in some weird habits, like putting towels on my head, wishing I had long hair, like wanting to like get a nose surgery, like got into weird stuff like that, which luckily I kind of got out of pretty quickly. I um, uh, I would definitely say that there are certain people who made a huge difference because I don't know without certain support systems if I would have made it in the same way. I, I do know my first like experience from adult, like on a professional level was when I tried to go audition to be Annie. And they told me I couldn't be Annie because I was black. And so there was a lot of microaggressions that happened going through school um, like that. So it was it was it was an ongoing thing. Now that being said, things did get way better for me after junior high because I did happen to befriend some very popular kids who were upperclassmen, which one of them's husband is Claude, and then one of them is Stacy, who uh who Heather has met, um, but they were super popular back then. And I became friends with them. And, um, and I spent most of my time with them because I wasn't having the same experiences with them that I was having with my own classmates. One time I left track early, I broke protocol, I was supposed to go back to the school and they didn't. And I went to Stacy's house and I just cried. And I was like, I can't take it anymore. The, the bullying was getting to the point where I, I was starting to have a meltdown. And her and Claude's wife was who's teal and a few other people went and talked to some of my teachers because they wanted very specific situations about where the worst stuff was happening. Um, and they intervened. And now that I think about it, I'm like, my God, those are kids, like ninth graders. And they went and talked to teachers and they're like, this has got to stop. And I got rearranged in some seating. And then them and a couple of boys kind of bully intimidated a couple of the people in my class. But most of the day-to-day harassment ended after that, like permanently. There was a few things that happened um, when I was older, but it luckily most of that most of that stopped after they intervened. And so I I credit them with basically saving the person who I am because I don't know if I could have I don't know I was getting I was getting to the point where I I hated that town. I mean I hated it, and I don't like to use that word very often, but I could not wait until I was free from it. I have a question that I'm going to throw out there, and I don't necessarily expect you to know the answer, but I know you well enough to know that you may have considered this in the past. You mentioned two specific friends, but there was there was others as well that were there were the popular kids, but they really dug in and like stood up for you. Is there anything that you noticed that was maybe different about their family? Or is there anything that you can attribute that behavior to in terms of what helped them develop into those people versus the little a-holes that were perpetuating the negativity? Not that I would know, but then um, all I can say is that I spent a lot of time with their families, right? So I would be able to go to their houses and spend a lot of time. And I, and I never felt like I never felt different. So maybe that's what it is now as an, as an adult knowing them, I definitely know that they are different, but a lot of that stuff, because what I will say, cause this is, you know, cause <laughs> my classmates are going to be like, what I will say is I've had several, and I mean, and, and I mean several and some of the worst 
people who were, who treated me the worst as adults come and talk to me about it. And first of all, that takes a lot of growth and it takes a lot of courage and it does regardless if it's right or wrong. It's really hard to be like, I know I was awful to you. Mm-hmm. And they came to that on their own. And um, so I, I, I want to say there's been a lot of growth in a lot of these individuals and almost everyone who was kind of like the worst of them um, in my class spoke to me one-on-one independently over the course of a few years, but they all did. And so I, and I did forgive them because I'm just not one to hold on to it after an apology. I'll hold on to it before one. <laughs> but, um, but I just, you know, you just, and that's kind of what we've spoken about and other things. You got to give people some grace. You got to give people some room to grow because it's, because if you shut that down and you don't let that take hold, then what possibly can happen down the road? Like I said, I just don't want to ever be that. I don't want to ever turn off that spigot for anybody or for anybody, you know, for them or for anyone that they may come in contact with because it, it is a butterfly effect. So I just want to say that. But I mean, it does it does get taught at, at home. I, I actually just told somebody today because um, my friend who's helping me move, they asked me, you know, because we were talking about how it starts. And and so when I was in college and I came back to Clorinda, I was in what the little community, I don't know what do we call it, department store called Easter's, which is a local chain. And I was doing my last second, oh, I got to go to a wedding. Let me buy a card. And there was what couldn't have been more than a two-year-old in the aisle with what I presumed to be his mom. And I was in one aisle. They were like across the aisle in the same aisle. And the little kid like looked at me and pointed and goes, there's an N-word. Just like nothing, right? And then so I, I stood there and looked at her and she stood there and looked at me and she did not apologize. She didn't say, she just took her kid and she like went out there and I was like, yep, this is why I don't like this town. It is part of the ethos. I mean, I used to get people putting Confederate flags in my locker, which is why I have such a real antagonistic view of the Confederacy because we're from Iowa. But the whole point is people pretend they don't understand the messaging they do because that was 30 years ago and we are from Iowa. And yeah, people are putting that in there or they're they're sitting at desks that they know I sit at and they're putting the N-word in and engraving it into the wooden desk that I sit at. So there was there was a lot. Like it, it was, it was, it was a, a bombardment, I would say, to the point where, like, I didn't date until I was, like, in Iowa City. I didn't – nobody asked me to prom ever. Like, you know, I mean, like I said, things did turn around quite a bit, but they never completely turned around. I mean, I came within, like, two votes of winning student body president. Um, So I did become, you know, pretty popular, but there's still always, like, a line, a division there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a line you can't cross. A feeling that you can only go so far. Right. Right. Kids are really mean, but I do think like then the rest what kind of asked about the parents and if there was anything like that had stood out to you because I really kids are going through a lot and I'm not defending any behaviors because but kids are going through a lot and they're trying to figure out who they are. And unfortunately, a lot of times that manifests in negativity towards other like picking on someone that's different than you. But at the same time, like the racial stuff that's learned, it's really nice to hear that a lot of people have come back and tried to make amends for that. And that's, that's very commendable, but the wounds are cut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
that's, again, that's why I was trying to ask if there was anything, because if there's a parent that can hear the story, that can hear maybe something that they can say or do differently with their children just to hopefully not allow that to happen. God, that's just, that was just so important because I mean, well, to some degree you have to say, well, you know, and, and I guess that was my story about the two-year-old. There is nowhere else for them, a two-year-old to pick that up. Right. Right. That's just home. And, um, and maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it's like, I mean, it's hard to say who, um, I just remember at the time I, I, you know, I didn't say anything to her. I was just kind of stunned because first of all, I just wasn't ready for it. And, um, and then also what do you do? I mean, as a kid, um, and in the same sense, but I will tell you, I know it looks different. And, um, and another experience that kind of is the flip side of the exact same thing was when I was a waitress here, I was a waitress and I encountered a couple with their child who was probably around the same age. And that child had clearly never interacted, at least in real life, with a brown person before because their little mind was blown. Like, <laughs> I mean, blown. They, I mean, I, I can't even express to you guys, it's one of those things that you almost have to be there, but the kid could not get over it. The kid just like couldn't sit down, couldn't eat their food. It couldn't, like, they just were like, you're brown, you're brown, you're brown. Like, first of all, they didn't use any, like, it was a descriptive term, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I, you can tell guys, I don't know. It's really hard to explain. And I think that's why microaggressions get like blown off. It's because after a while we, we know, you know, and so I can't tell you why, but I know that it wasn't the parents teaching that kid anything. It was just the kid didn't, that was a reality that they just were like, what's going on? <laughs> you know that you're what you you're different you know that but it wasn't fear it wasn't horror it was just more right. like just like wow right. and yeah in that i felt so bad because those parents were freaking out they were trying to get the kid to calm down the mom was almost in tears and i kept telling her it is okay right. like i can tell you guys are not those people i can tell i know that like I've just blown this little kid's mind. It's okay. Like <laughs> I get this it. Child is learning. Yes, learning in action. It's a fascinating thing. It's amazing. And the woman in the store, whether she was the one that taught that two-year-old that word or not, she is just as guilty as whoever Agreed. did by not immediately correcting Agreed. that. That is an opportunity to enact really positive change. And she blew it off. And she brushed you off and ignored the entire experience. And it doesn't matter if she's the one that said it or not. She allowed that to be perpetuated. I had a, I have a very uh, close friend here in Raleigh who is part of a very large traditional Indian family. And I had the honor of being invited to his father's, I think it was his 60th birthday or 65th birthday. And it was this huge Indian family. We were over at their house. It was me and, uh, and several of our close friends. But this man has a little daughter who is constantly surrounded by this massive, engaging, loving family of Indian people. Everyone is brown. And it was me and a handful of our close friends in the backyard. And this adorable little girl came running out the porch. She said, Daddy, there's so many white people here. (laughs) And it was adorable. It was the cutest thing ever. But he immediately swooped in and was like, no, honey, that's not what we do. We we don't address people by the color of their skin. And it was just this really awesome experience where he was able to be like, yep, they don't look like us. That does not make them any different. Yes, because you can acknowledge difference without poo-pooing it. And where and, and, and that's why like I hate the whole colorblind idea. But see, I love that because that story is like, yes, there's a distinction here, but it's mm-hmm. 
Like you don't, you don't make a big deal out of it. You can acknowledge it, but you know, and she's just, and same thing with her. She's like, what's going on? This she's is an adorable my- <laughs> four-year-old. It's like, these <laughs> yeah. people look different. This is exciting. And if you're, it, it's just, I also, I know this is really nitpicky and hair splitting, but when we say that racism is learned, it's not learned, it's taught. There are people teaching this. It is taught. And if you are a small, small child, you're not learning. You're just absorbing what's around you. And that's not a choice that you have to make. And that's, that's one of the little important. ways we have to shift our perspective a bit. But you're right, though. And that's a, such an important part of that. Because like you said, it's taught. And so, and that's what I mean by giving people grace to change. Because they were taught that. And then they, and then some people choose to take the opportunity to step away from that ingrained learning. And it doesn't mean it wipes it clean because we all have prejudices and when you're dealing with stuff that's ingrained societally, it's a, it's, you know, wiping it clean is not, it's not realistic. It's not realistic because even we ourselves, like it's been shown that people of color, um, specifically black people, um, if race is introduced before we take a test, we tend to do poorer because that ingrained thought process is so deep. Right. But like you said, take an opportunity to, to step outside and just, and, and do, and do your programming. And when people mm-hmm. try, we have to give them kudos. I mean, sometimes I know you're like, oh, baby clap. But you, if we don't start somewhere, if we don't start somewhere. With that, actually, I'd like to shift a little bit. You're pretty fucking amazing. And so coming from Retweet. the negativity that you dealt with and the very clear oppressions and the, the very, definitive things that could have turned you into an angry, negative, hate life person, you didn't do that. So I guess what I'm wondering is, I know that you had some amazing friends. That's that's awesome. And that was obviously very helpful. Was there anything else that you felt like, any other mentor, an icon, anything else that specifically helped you navigate that or come out from the dark pieces? I wish I could say there was in my hometown. There wasn't really. However, that being said, I don't want to say that there wasn't amazing people because I lost my mom in my senior year and it happened very quickly. And so in the same way that you kind of hate the small town atmosphere, it was super critical in in getting through that. (laughs) I was going to say my mom like went into cardiac arrest at home. We took her to the hospital. By the time we came home, there was already flowers there (laughs) because that's how a small town works. Right. And so, and then there was people who like, you know, like my librarian, she, afterwards, she took me to the store to, to get me fitted for a bra and our neighbors and a couple of them got in conjunction with each other to put together money to buy me um, fabric and to make my prom dress for me. And so there was people who expressed love to our family that was unconditional, but I don't know that there was a way to navigate that other piece. And that didn't really happen until college. And even after that, because there were some bad habits I started manifesting that I didn't understand where some of these things were coming from until my mid-20s where some of the behaviors that I was exhibiting that weren't really the healthiest, it it took me a long time to figure out that like my self-esteem was broken, which is weird because I'm a highly confident person and I always was, but there can be this disconnect between your different parts of you. So some things about you can be confident and then some things about you can just still be broken. Yes. you. I think that's more common than it isn't. A hundred percent. Yeah. You put on you're confident because you have to be. 
I think your answer is perfect in terms of, well, it's perfect because it's the truth, but in terms of exemplifying the fact that a lot of times we're looking for a magic pill, we're looking for a silver bullet, something, this one person brought me the light, or you know what I'm saying? Like, we're looking for this one shining example, but the truth is, it was a ton of tiny, little, little baby things, is what it sounds like. And your seven-year-old iron will. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I did have that. Mm -hmm. I just tell people what I what I believed was that along my path, and I've always been so interestingly enough. We talked about our fire starter about our personalities. What I will say is I'm an unapologetic unapologetic feminist, and I will say I've been a feminist basically since I can remember before I knew what a feminist was. I definitely didn't get taught that. And I don't want to say that, you know, my mom didn't teach, but that I just was, I don't know. I just know, I just know who all my heroes were. It was Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman. And, mm-hmm. and I'll, that's what I've been drawn to ever since I can remember. My thought in that is just that I have always believed that God used to put women in my path, strong women who helped me along the way. And some of them came for a season. Some of them came for a day. Some of them have been lifelong. Women who helped me went walk, helped me crawl, sometimes had to drag me, but who helped me recognize the better parts of myself. And that's why I am such a fierce advocate of women supporting other women. Because what I will say is that, and this is just for people at large, but when you have people who you recognize are, there's nothing in it for them. They just care about you and love you and support you and want the best for you. And it manifests itself. There is almost nothing more powerful than that. Mm -hmm. That is very true. The most. The most true. The most true ever. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to school? Was it in Iowa? Yeah, I started at the University of Iowa. So of course you're a Hawkeye. Of course. Why did I? I knew that. The Hawkeyes taught me how to drink and it was not always good at the beginning. (laughs) We went to an Arizona game when Angie and some friend over there from Iowa and holy more. Oh my gosh, you guys and your Iowa football. It's a pastime. It was. I mean, what else are you going to do? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Pretty much nothing. (laughs) Right. Although I I was just a designated driver for like a decade before Uber and Lyft, a free one might you, but yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Now- I mean, Iowa is one of the whitest states. So I wonder, did you ever consider leaving Iowa? If so, and also if not, why not? I assumed I was going to leave Iowa, actually. I always assumed it. But things changed when my mom died in my senior year. And so things dramatically changed then um, because... Back then, I was getting courted by some high-level schools, which, you know, later on, I kind of found out why. But because, you know, they they do want to recruit minorities and they want to recruit well-performing minorities, which is kind of, you know, what I find the irony of people who are always screaming about affirmative action. I'm like, no, they, you know, those schools don't want loser people. (laughs) They don't. They, They want high performers. They seek them out. So I was getting courted by that. And that's kind of what was we were looking at, but my mom got sick um, during basketball season at the beginning and she died before basketball season was over. So the whole thing happened really fast. And that was right during college applications. So long story short, all of that stuff vanished with her. You know, my dad just didn't have, you know, good parenting skills. Long story short, I ended up at Iowa by a fluke. It is not where I wanted to go. It's where I ended up, but 
Um, when I got here, my experience here was so dramatically different than than growing up that I actually came to peace with with this area pretty quickly. But like I said, based on some of my earlier trauma and you know losing a mom at eighteen, not having any guidance in that area, and then having kind of my my prior trauma layered onto that because they say there's like five things that can make fundamentally change who kids are like kids through adolescence one of them's if you lose a parent the other one's if you have a mentally incapacitated parent um, severe bullying sexual abuse and there's one more you can see i'm checking off a lot of things on that list right and so I just, I was scared after a certain point when I was comfortable here because I would have left if if I had the same experience, but I just had a lot of, of fear in me. And now it's just like, now I'm just like, uh, but that's, that's what it was back then because then I just was like, maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you can't succeed. And so that's something that I've been working my way through still. I, I would say that that's still an ongoing battle. So, and, and I don't, I should clarify that question to not just to you, but to the audience. My question isn't because Iowa is some awful place. I lived there for seven years. It's not an awful, awful place. It's actually very beautiful once you get used to corn. <laughs> my, my corn goes along. <laughs> it's really good too. My question is more related to you as the person that you are and potentially seeking out an environment that provided you with more stimulation, perhaps the stimulation that you deserved, perhaps the diversity that you deserved. So it's I'm not trying to sh- crap on Iowa it because it's it's not a bad space. It's just curious because of all the negativity um, if you were drawn to go. So I got some stuff the other way too, which I think made me a little bit nervous. So when I came here, um, I did join, I think after I joined the academic trivia team and I love them. And I was the only person, um, the only black person, there was actually other people of color. And that was like my family. When I got here, I joined, I, I joined that, like, I think it was the second week of school. And then I couldn't imagine leaving those people. I mean, I'm still good friends with a lot of them to this day. So uh, I found a home. But then the second year I joined in uh, an African American dance troupe called Black Genesis. And I had some different experiences between that and between some of my black classmates that I had where now I'm the wigger and now I am, you know, they wouldn't come to my parties because there's going to be all these white people there. And so then I had this othering experience from that perspective because I don't have an African-American experience at all, right? I don't have a black experience from America I have parents who are from a different country. I grew up in a completely white town. So I my interests are basically typically considered super white, except for my hip hop love. I dealt with some of that too. And then and then that made me really nervous because because I was getting rejected from that side. So I, I don't know that I felt comfortable leaving someplace where I'd found a place where I was accepted to go somewhere else. I, I think I became afraid of it. So you had it from both sides. You weren't black yeah. enough to be black and you weren't quite white enough to be white. Well, you just, you know, kind of like Carlton in the Fresh Prince. Carlton in the French Prince. As long as you dance better than him. Just mildly. Just mildly. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing we didn't quite mention, we're, we're asking if you moved, but you are a world traveler, honey. Have you not been to every single continent? 
I have been to okay. every continent. So let's just throw that in there. It's it, just to be clear. Nina is when she says she's she got out of Iowa. She got out of Iowa a lot. Uh, she just didn't move out of there. I wanted to know throughout all of your experiences if you could give a couple examples of things that happened in your life, things that you learned, things that you did, whatever the case that made a huge impact on who you are today in opening your mind, in you being the kind person that you are, even though you were maybe set up to be an angry person, just things that you think might be helpful to other people that they could search out that helped you. So the first thing is what we literally just touched on, which is traveling. I cannot express how much I think traveling can change you in the sense, but you have to be willing to like immerse yourself in it. It can't just be like an Instagram. I need to get shots. It has to be about learning about people. And I wouldn't say necessarily getting gritty because I am not really that. So I'm, I'm still bougie a little bit. Like I still have not stayed in a hostel because my best friend and I touched on it a few times. And I was like, I'm not, I can't, right. I need my own bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Mm -hmm. So I still have my little snotty little airs. But I, there is something just magical about going to different lands, trying different food, and and not just assuming that the place that you came from is the only place that has anything of value. And when you do that, and you talk to people, and you listen to their stories, you know, regardless of race, um, I, I like I said before, uh, older people, and and most of those people. Because generally when I travel with these exotic destinations, I generally am one of the only black people on the trip. It's pretty consistent. But I love people. I, I love people. So when and and people recognize when you really actually care about listening to what they have to say, they will open up, they will tell you things, um, they will share things with you. And I don't know how you can't come out of that not being a better person unless you choose not to. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is good is putting yourself in a position where you interact with people that you don't know and are different from you. And that can look a few different ways. So I think volunteering in your communities is a big thing. So I have done a lot of work in the past with Boys and Girls Club. I have done stuff like, you know, helping feed the homeless. And once again, some of this, what I'm about to say in terms of the location that I did the most work at is going to be viewed as controversial by some. But um, Salvation Army is a place where I spend a lot of time helping give out food and things like that. And, you know, there's some questions about some of their stances on things, but I haven't chosen to get wrapped up in that stuff because it has offered me a venue to get towards other people. So I, you know, I am not giving money. I'm spending time handing food to somebody who needs it. And so since that avenue is open, I will utilize it. And I think that we have to sometimes think about how something is set up in what you're doing and not necessarily write off all pieces of something just because it doesn't fit with what we want. And I, and I know that can be problematic for some, but I have to put people first. And and so I think if you put yourself in a position where you're helping people who need it, I, I think your heart grows. And I think that will extrapolate to other areas. And then the third thing that the third piece I would say is that people that you do have negative connotations about, seek them out, but not in a fetishizing way, 
not in a trivialization sort of, you know, methodology. But I know that, you know, I, I told you guys my mom was Jehovah's Witness. Well, that comes with a lot of beliefs about a lot of different categorizations of people. So I will say that, you know, I had a very caricature view of people in the LGBTQ community because I was raised in a view of that. But what happened is that, um, and people kept things from me for a while because I, you know, espoused that I was a Christian and stuff and I'm not really shy. So I share my beliefs, but I, I have always been very conscious of even with people that I don't agree with, not relegating them in a nasty way. So it's something that I'm always conscious about. Um, so first of all, I, I think that's like a sub like thing yourself is like, don't talk about people as in groups in negative derogatory ways. Um, you may not agree with them, but that doesn't make them whatever just because, but I learned by increasing my exposure that, oh my God, they're just people. So that's what we're going to, we're going to put that on a t-shirt too. <laughs> Oh I like that God. one. They're just They're people. Just people. <gasps> Revelation, bright light shining on all of us. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like and the it. The skies open up. Nina's the <gasps> Messiah. Everything. And we're all going to be okay. We're all going to be fine. Yes. Well, Nina, I have to say, I am seriously lucky that I was introduced to you however many crazy years ago when actually I'm pretty sure you really didn't like me at first, but that's okay. That's okay. We moved beyond that. I don't remember. I was going to say, I don't remember ever not liking you. I don't. I know you were really pissed but... at me at one point because you saw me out without realizing what was going on. And I waved to you and you're like, oh, that bitch, I'm not waving to her because I was out with people that you didn't think I was supposed to be out with. Do you remember oh, that? that? And I was like, oh, he does not like me. Anyways. Uh, I am tribal. Story for another day. But um, I'm putting that on a t-shirt too. Me too. Am tribal. Um, do you want to share where people can find you? Um, you have a phenomenally engaging social media presence. Would you like to share that with the audience? Yeah, I think it's actually just facebook.com slash Feminion. You'll have to get that because since I was the first Feminion on Facebook, um, <laughs> I got that distinction. I'm the only Nina with an H feminine in the whole world that we know of. Ooh. There's one other without an H that Famous. we know of, but yeah, it's exactly, it's kind of cool. I think so, but I just want to warn you, if you're coming to my page, just like, if you're not ready for it, don't come. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've already told them. No apologies, guys. <laughs> exactly. I was like, don't come for me unless I send for you. But um, if you're, if you're ready to, cause, cause I love being challenged. I love having a good time. I love having the debate. If you, if you want to be nasty, it's probably not the spot. Cause, cause I can give just as good. But if you've got like a thick skin, come on down. All right. This is what so we will. Like. So what we'll do is in the show notes, we will, because obviously Feminion is not a common name. Uh, so we'll go ahead and put in the show notes, your actual contact information. So if you'd like to follow Nina, please do. It's very entertaining. Very, very entertaining. Uh-huh. Good times. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. Check out the show notes to find out how to connect with Nina. And don't forget, she's a small business owner, so we would love for you to support her as you see fit. We want to extend a really 
special thank you to Teal and Stacy and to all those who, even at a young age, stood up against wrongful treatment and made a critical difference in Nina's life, which subsequently allowed her to make a difference in ours. This week's call to action is to take and do as many small acts of kindness as you can. This can be the tiniest thing. You can pay $1.25 for someone's coffee. Wave at someone who you don't know. Just do something and do as many somethings as you can. The tiniest things can make a world of difference. We hope you were inspired today to think more deeply. Don't miss next week's episode where we'll be talking about tone policing, what it means, and how to navigate it. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out by email, info at diversityonfire.com or leave us a voice note. The link for that can be found in the show notes. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. And please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. Mm-hmm.